Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome back to episode number 27. And today we have a guest appearance, first time, from Dr. Robert Sungenis, and we will be discussing the debates between a geocentric and heliocentric cosmology. Now, cosmological debates, or Earth-shaped debates for that matter, can get very heated, and people can get very cranky about them. So, what we're going to do is simplify it and only focus on the heliocentric-geocentric issue today. And as usual, when people try to debate about science, there seems to be a lot of philosophy and religion brought into it, either in an active or passive way. And what we mean by the latter is how certain people who are more enamored with science and might call themselves an atheist or having some sort of materialist worldview, tend to often behave very much like religious people and when you hold the exact same criteria that they put on the people holding to a particular religious tradition and having that tied to cosmology, well, very often they don't hold up to their own standards in the process. And that will be a recurring theme in our discussion with Mr. Sungenis. And also for the flat earth folk out there, we won't be touching upon that topic today. However, hopefully we will be able to have Dr. Sungenis back to discuss his book on the flat earth issue. And as for me, I'm no scientist. I'm kind of an idiot when it comes to science. I don't understand it. I'm not good at empirical observation or any of that stuff. So I just kind of got to go with my gut when I hit my limit of scientific understanding. And I have to find other ways to discern what I think about such issues. But I always enjoy when people can explain scientific discoveries and what their implications are in a way that idiots like me can understand. And this is what I think that the movie The Principle can help do for people such as myself and of which Dr. Sungenis was a huge part of. And whatever positions you happen to hold on these debates, I highly suggest you watch the movie and we will discuss everything that is contained within The Principle and more here in episode number 27. Welcome back to another episode, and we are at number 27. And today we have Dr. Robert Sungenis on to discuss the battles between heliocentrism and geocentrism. So, Dr. Sungenis, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Michael, so glad to have the opportunity to speak with you. Maybe you could tell us a bit about your personal background and feel free to share as much as you like as to your journey and where you're at now and then how you got involved in the debate around geocentrism and then your participation in the movie The Principle. Sure, I'd like to do that for you. Um, well, let me see, I was um, born and raised a Catholic back in the late 1950s, and then I became a Protestant at age 19, 
because I had a very intense spiritual experience when I was in my college dormitory. And then everybody told me the Catholic Church was uh, too steeped in tradition and all kinds of rituals that didn't make any sense and, you know, come join the Protestants. So be, me being naive at that time, very naive, actually, uh, I joined and I was there for the next 17 years. And then I came back to the Catholic Church in 1992 and um, so enthralled with uh, my new vision of the church that I started an organization called Catholic Apologetics International. And uh, I knew the Bible very well because when I was a Protestant for 17 years, I studied it night and day. And I was known as Bible Bob at that time. And, and I was a card-carrying Protestant. I was an elder in my church and all kinds of things. I was doing shows all over the nation. And um, anyway, I was very steeped into it. And, but then I saw the truth of the Catholic Church where the Protestants had come to an end in most of their studies, the Catholic Church picked it up and gave the rest of the answers, so to speak. Um, that was 1992, and I started the organization Catholic Apologetics International in 1993, and have been at it ever since, actually. So we were on our 27th year, and um, along the way, uh, in the year 2003, um, had to have anything to do one Sunday afternoon, and it was on the internet. Came across this PhD in astronomy, and he was a Christian, a Protestant Christian, uh, saying that the Earth was in the center of the universe and wasn't moving. And so I had to make the decision that Saturday afternoon whether I was going to go out and play basketball with the guys or if I was going to press the next key to get into his website and find out what was going on. And I chose the latter, and um, it's it's been a, a, a roller coaster ride ever since because I figured if a PhD in scientist says the Earth is in the center, there must be a reason for it. So I went into his website and looked at all the things that he was doing, and I knew some of the physics because I was a physics major for a while in college, and um, and it looked pretty kosher to me. So it was just a matter of, you know, deciding whether I was going to pursue this or not. And I, and I started to think, I said, well, what's the one area where the Catholic Church is attacked very much and made to look like it was an ignorant institution that pretended to know things of the cosmos, but really didn't. And science had surpassed the church many times over and said that the church's belief that the earth was in the center and not moving was bogus and science had proven it wrong and all this stuff. So I had a job to do as a Catholic apologist. My job is to defend the church in whatever doctrinal decrees she issued and show that these are true and trustworthy. And because if it wasn't, if there was some moment in history where the Holy Spirit decided to go on vacation, so to speak, and leave the church on her own, then how could the church claim that, you know, she's been led into all truth as Jesus promised? And uh, one of those truths that she gave us, not only in the Galileo stage, but prior to that with the fathers of the church and the catechisms that she wrote and two popes who declared heliocentrism a formal heresy and and onward and onward as the story went, covers 2,000 years of Catholic history, 
well, why would uh, that be an exception to the rule for the Catholic Church that she messed up royally, not only in giving the wrong answer to that science question, but even claiming that she had the right to do so? Uh, that was another issue. Why did she claim that right? And it comes down to the fact that she said that this issue, believe it or not, is a matter of faith and morals. Uh, so I said, well, if that's the case, then I better delve into this. And I, as I said, it was my job. I considered it a labor of love. And, and the more I investigated, the more I became convinced that the church made the right decision with Galileo. And it's been 15 years since, and there hasn't been anything, not one thing, that would deter me from continuing on this path and, and giving this message to the rest of my fellow Catholics. So that's where it all started. And uh, then the Flat Earth thing came up a couple of years ago. That was a pretty new movement. It started to rise again in two, 2014. And I didn't pay any attention to it at that time. But after the movie I made, uh, The Principal, and that was a movie that we put into theaters uh, back in 2014. And boy, what a brouhaha that became. Uh, there was a very popular topic at that time. We were the one, at one point, we were the third highest topic on the internet around the world. And to denounce us, and they all came together at once to, to try to attack us so we couldn't get this movie out. Um, they, they were, at one time in April of 2014, there were 150 news outlets across the world that were slamming me, smearing me, and saying this or that. And no, nobody contacted me to get my side of the story. They had an agenda. They weren't going to talk to me. And they spread this, uh, these rumors all around the world about this movie, how bogus it was, and how we trapped people into saying certain things, and all kinds of stuff came up. And they were all untrue. And we, and we eventually exposed all of them as lies. And then we don't hear any more from the media because, you know, they're on a 24-hour news cycle. And after a while, people get tired of it and they go on to the next topic and attack the next person they want off the uh, airwave, so to speak. Um, but, and so it actually vindicated us, uh, as time went along. Um, and the movie was out in about, well, let's see, say 15 theaters across the U S and, but then we ran out of money and couldn't put it in, uh, the theaters anymore. So we put it on DVD and streaming. And so it's now available on our website, the And, um, you know, we do fairly well selling the DVD across the world. And, uh, so we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. And, uh, we've had some follow-up videos to that as well. Uh, one called journey to the center of the universe which is much more detailed than what a movie can give you in 90 minutes. Uh, so we, we made that. And so, yeah, that's been over 15 years. And then I got into the flat earth thing a couple years ago. And uh, some, actually, I was hired to write a piece against it. And um, so I put my nose to the grindstone there. And by the time I was done, I had 700 pages in this book. And I published that a couple years ago and against the flat earth idea. Uh, and so that's, uh, my history up until the present. Yeah. And I think one of the amazing things about this all is that you get hit from both sides. You get 
the people who are tied to, you know, scientism, as some call it, uh, who are going to slander the principle for just geocentrism. And then the flip side, the flat earthers will say there's a conspiracy for the Catholic Church promoting the globe. And then it reminds me a lot of dialectical battles and, you know, like left and right politics. I think that that's kind of similar with the dialectics around this with the globe earthers and the flat earthers. And I applaud you for taking on both sides of that uh, very fearlessly. Yeah, what they tried to do, I got constant calls and emails from these flat earthers asking me to join their movement. And they, they would use the ploy, well, we all, we all believe that the earth is in the center of the universe. So come join us. And, uh, you know, I knew the repercussions of that. It would just be, okay, here, here uh, Robertson Janice really shows us his cards and shows us, you know, <laughs> what an idiot he really is because he believes the earth is flat. So how can we believe what he's teaching about the earth being in the center of the universe? So, yeah, I had to be very careful uh, in that uh, mine, mine yard to <laughs> watch my steps. For sure. And uh, I would say something about the principle. I rewatched it uh, last week. I had seen it um, right when I started listening to the Flat Earth debates and I'm just interested in the whole phenomenon. And, you know, they do raise some good points about this or that. But as, as regards to the movie... I thought it was really well done and and not just uh, for what you were presenting, but also it was just artistically cool. I liked how there was sort of that Renaissance art, but there was sort of that crude cutout that kind of made it, I don't know, very, uh, I don't know, just unique. I like the style of it. And then the substance of it was very good as well, because it really gives you a lot of insights into just how crazy things have evolved to keep this Copernican principle going. So with that being said, um, let's actually begin with Copernicus and kind of go through a little bit of a timeline of the movie and, you know, all of these debates. And uh, actually, I guess before we do that, can you just give us the uh, position of the Catholic Church on geocentrism until Copernicus started challenging it? And then maybe you can start to go into what he was doing to try to undermine that. Yeah, well, Copernicus was steeped in Greek philosophy, and he had this idea that, just like Aristarchus of Samos did, who was a third-century Greek astronomer, that, that there was something special about the sun. Uh, just like the, there was something special about the circle to Aristotle, to these guys, there was something special about the sun. So they wanted to put it in the center and have the earth and the planets go around it. And they figured that was the most logical system. Uh, you had Aristotle, on the other hand, who said, um, no, the Earth is in the center. Uh, and by the way, the Greeks that started the heliocentric model came from the Pythagorean school. And their name is actually mentioned in the church documents that were dealing with Galileo. They knew the source of this thing was the Pythagoras. So, and he comes from the 6th century BC. So that's quite a long time ago. Uh, and then, of course, you get Aristotle, Plato, and, um, and they saw the opposite view, that the Earth was in the center. So Copernicus was really made a decision to follow the Pythagoreans, and Aristarchus of Samos was their major spokesman in the 3rd century. And so that's where he gets his material from. He did very little original work. Uh, all he did was take Aristarchus's model, try to polish it up a little bit, and um, the reason he was motivated to do this is because 
At that time, the calendar was having problems. We didn't have the Gregorian calendar like we have today. We had the Julian calendar. And uh, that thing, um, although it was close to being accurate, it was just not accurate enough. So as the years went by, it started to accumulate error after error after error. And so Easter might have been celebrated in June instead of April or, or March. And uh, so this whole thing, we've got to fix the calendar. I mean, come on, we need to know what the date is. Semblance of being educated people. So Copernicus thought, well, the problem was that uh, we believe the Earth was in the center. And so let's switch this around and blah, blah, blah. And he put out his first book around 1510 and uh, I called the um, Commentoriolus. And um, it was very weak. Uh, he just really couldn't put it all together because he found out as he went into it that it was much more complicated than he thought at the start. And it's, that's still the same today. We still, if you're a heliocentrist, you still don't have uh, a, a complete accurate grasp of how the solar system works. Even after they added Kepler's ellipsis to the planets, they still didn't get it right. So that's where we are today. So in other words, um, he found it more difficult. So he spent the next 30 years trying to refine it. He finally came out with his book, De Revolutionibus, in 1543. And uh, he died that year. And then he, but he had some Protestant friends. One of them was Reticus. The other was uh, Osiander. Um, they, they helped publish this book. And uh, it was presented as a hypothesis to the Catholic Church. Osiander the Lutheran said, look, you know, the church has been geocentric for 1,500 years. You better present this as a hypothesis to the Pope, which is the way he wrote the foreword to the book. And then after Copernicus died, he, he uh, somehow got it into the Catholic magisterium. They took a look at it, and they said, right from the beginning, this, this book has problems, not only theologically, but also scientifically. He had major opponents in the 1540s. Um, Spina was one, Cardinal Spina was one of them. And um, by the end of the 1540s, uh, they had banned Copernicus's book. And that was within about, what, five to seven years of his publishing the book in 1543. So right away, the Catholic Church saw the problems. And then by 1559, uh, or, uh, Copernicus's book was put on the Index of Forbidden Books. And it stood there for, what, the next um, 200 years until uh, we had a little problem with Gregory XVI, who took it off. And the reason he took it off is because he was lied to by his own uh, prelates. And I'll get into that later. But um, so that's been the history. So when Galileo came along, uh, what, how many years later, uh, almost 100 years later, let's say eight, uh, what, um, 70 years later, um, you know, the church had been through this before. Bellarmine knew that Copernicus's book was put on the index already. And so, and Bellarmine's first encounter with this was with Father Foscarini a year before Galileo. Father Foscarini had published a book uh, advocating heliocentrism, and he got called into the church, and the church said, uh, this is wrong, and um, condemned the book. Uh, three months later, Foscarini dies, and uh, that was that issue. And then Galileo came along the very next year, 
and wrote two letters, uh, one to Christine Lorraine, who was the daughter of Cosimo Medici, who was the Duke of Tuscany. And that letter got around and uh, the church got a hold of it and saw that it was full of errors because it was it was uh, advocating heliocentrism. And um, and that was the beginning of Galileo's trials with the church. And uh, if you want me to go on, I can go on. But that's the beginning of the whole thing. When I read through a bit of Copernicus, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I don't understand the data. But I noticed uh, in the On Revolutions, at the very beginning, he lays out a lot of this kind of Masonic-esque rhetoric, you know, talking about Pythagoras and like, you know, their tradition kind of withheld information from the profane and He's got all these glorifying statements about the sun, and it sounds very theological to me. And um, I think even the beginning of that book, the translator makes mention that it's actually more of a psychological battle over whether one point revolves around the other. And that's certainly what I think you see with a lot of this. And the other thing about his book is, it, uh, is that it didn't work. Um, as a matter of fact, he had to start adding epicycles to his model to make it uh, configure with what we saw in the sky. And that was ironic because the very thing that Copernicus had criticized Ptolemy for, because Ptolemy's model was the model the church was using up until the modern age. Um, and he had epicycles and he had equants and things like that. And it worked pretty good. I mean, he put it, he put together a system that you could actually predict where a planet was going to be in the sky within reason. And uh, Copernicus came along with his heliocentric model, and he goes, oh, well, this is going to take away all those epicycles. We won't need those because this is the perfect model. And then he found that when he was done, he had actually more epicycles in his model than Ptolemy had in his. But you don't hear that in the, in the classrooms today. Yeah, I find that a lot of these things are omitted to give a balancing viewpoint, and that's the irony here, the uh, science side is claiming to be the ones about objective truth and measuring all standards the same, but there are many instances where they don't seem to do that. So speaking of which, if you wanted to go on to Galileo, feel free to do so because we get this mythos about the evil inquisition and all this kind of stuff. And then anytime you see him presented, he's just this upright figure standing up for truth and justice and could do no wrong. And when I read, he seemed like he was a little arrogant sometimes and not really the nicest person to deal with. So what is your take on Galileo? What are some of the misconceptions? And did he really die a diehard heliocentrist? He, uh, he's a, an enigma, but he was known to be very irascible and always trying to be the top guy, top dog. Uh, that's just part of his character. And uh, Bellarmine, on the other hand, his antagonist, uh, was known to be very erudite, very intelligent. I mean, this guy was the one who led the, led the charge against the Protestant Reformation. And my gosh, he got his stars for that because he, he's a lot older now, uh, Bellarmine is. But he's, he was always known to be a gentleman. A gentle guy, and that's that's why he didn't come down real hard on Galileo personally and, and physically. He gained, came down on him mentally. He says, "Look, you can't prove this system." And Galileo or uh, Bellarmine knew about relativity at that point. He knew that you know it could go one way or the other. And for someone to come into the church and say, "Well, you got it wrong," 
Well, you better have some proof to it because, look, uh, we know the Earth can be in the center just by the relativistic nature of the whole thing. So how are you going to prove to us that uh, your view that's, that's totally opposite is the correct one? Uh, he said, look, Scripture told us this about, you know, over two dozen times. The fathers of the church, all the philosophers, all the saints, everybody in the Middle Age uh, and, and prior for 1,500 years or 1,600 years prior to Galileo all said the same thing. Why? Because they considered Scripture divine revelation and that God told the truth. The earth is in the center and isn't moving. So you better have some, a lot of scientific proof to go the other way. And he didn't. And he knew it, basically. He was always trying to make up some kind of other scientific truth that um, the church had to accept because Galileo said it, you know, and he was a scientist and all this kind of, but, you know, Bellarmine saw right through it all. And by the time things were done and Bellarmine made his analysis, uh, Pope Paul V got involved at that time, and he set a commission of 11 cardinals to examine Galileo's thesis, and they came out at the end of it and said, not only is this wrong scientifically, uh, because he can't prove it, the other thing is, it's a formal heresy because it goes against what the ordinary magisterium has taught us for 1,600 years, that is uh, the patristics and scripture. Now, the patristics, these, uh, all the fathers of the church were in 100% agreement that geocentrism was the true teaching, and that didn't come out of a vacuum. That was against the heliocentric Greek teaching that the fathers were opposing, and they used scripture to oppose it. So, you know, they had, they had worked out all these things prior, and that Bellarmine said, look, this is what we have to stick with. This is the Catholic Church. And this becomes a matter of faith and morals, not because intrinsically geocentrism, which is, you know, a story about motions in the sky, but because Scripture says it's in the middle and doesn't move, and Scripture is divine revelation. So if you're going to say that Scripture is wrong on this, then that becomes a matter of faith. And that's why it became such a big deal. Foscarini had made no claims uh, before the year before Galileo that, you know, we would uh, make this a matter of faith. He was just giving a scientific uh, opinion. But when Galileo got in, he started making Scripture uh, one of the pivot points and uh, saying Scripture either is wrong about this or we need to interpret these passages metaphorically or symbolically because I know what the scientific truth is, that the earth isn't in the center. And that's where Bellaman's hackles got up, and uh, he was responsible to defend the church in that regard and saying it is a matter of faith. And so much so that when Paul V got the report from the 11 cardinals uh, who recommended that it was a formal heresy, uh, Paul V put his rubber stamp on that and said, it is. Bellarmine then came to Galileo and said, this is the church's decision. Don't you ever talk about this again. Don't write about it. Don't speak about it. Nothing. And uh, then we'll just let you go. We won't pursue it any longer. So that uh, transpired for, what, the next uh, nine years? No, seven years. And in... Um, in 15, uh, I'm sorry, 1623, Galileo starts writing his book, the, um, the Two World Systems. This is the book that eventually got him into deeper trouble with the church a few years later. 
But he starts writing this book, and this is a direct violation of what Paul V had told him. Do not pursue this subject. Uh, but Galileo, being the character that he was, uh, you know, wasn't going to listen to anybody, especially at this time. He's a young man, and he wants to make his mark in the world. And he figures he's got the cat by the tail here, and he's going to pursue it. So um, he writes this book. And at this time, uh, there's a cardinal that is his friend. And um, he's actually promoting Galileo's work. And so Galileo is encouraged by this and figures, wow. I got somebody on my side from the hierarchy. Um, let me do this. And um, so he does it. And then um, the, in the ne next 10 years follows, and Galileo tries to get, he's finished the book now, and he tries to get an imprimatur for the book. He knows somehow that the, the Catholic Church isn't going to give it to him because the cardinal that was his friend now became Pope Urban VIII, and now Pope Urban VIII is looking a little bit more skeptically at Galileo's work than he had 10 years prior, because he's the Pope, and he's responsible now for what the church is going to teach. And uh, so at this time, he finds out about Galileo's book, finds out that Galileo tried to get an imprimatur uh, underhandedly by going to Florence and uh, uh, accosting his father Nicolini who, who um, with a couple of Galileo's friends, got him drunk one day and uh, basically persuaded him, uh, you know, you've got to do this. You've got to give this imprimatur. So Nicolini finally does, uh, all under the, uh, the um, well, actually, without the Pope's permission. And Nicolini knew that the Pope was uh, coming against this whole theory because um, at this time, Pope Urban was writing letters to Cosimo Medici, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, and telling him that, look, this, this heliocentric thing that Galileo is pushing is a heresy. It is going to disrupt the church. It's going to turn it upside down. We will never recover from this if it's allowed to go forth. And at this time in history, the, the, the magisterium was working very closely with the governmental authorities. It's not like today where you have separation of church and state. So uh, Urban's trying to persuade Cosimo. And, um, you know, it just so happens that Galileo had been teaching the son of Cosimo Medici, mathematics and science and all this. So Cosimo was very close to Galileo. And so, you know, the post caught between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. Uh, trying to convince Cosimo to go against Galileo. But as push comes to shove, um, the, the Pope finally decides that he's going to put Galileo on trial for publishing this book and getting the imprimatur. So he calls him down to Rome. This is in 1633 now, and puts him on trial. And it's brought up that Galileo is a, um, he, he didn't obey what the church told him in 1616 under Paul V. As Paul V said, don't pursue this subject, and he was given an injunction by the church, a legal injunction, and uh, that was found out in 1633, and so they posed this, to, they said to Galileo in the trial, weren't you given an injunction? And if he had lied to them, boy, things would have been pretty bad for him. So he said, yes, I was given an injunction, they finally got it out of him, and so you disobeyed this, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he, they said, look, the church has already decided this issue in 1616. We're not going to go against it because we see no evidence to the contrary. 
And so they, they convicted Galileo being vehemently suspect of heresy. And the reason they use the word suspect is because they didn't know for sure whether Galileo himself really believed in this heliocentrism thing or whether he was just sort of testing the waters to see if he could pass muster with the magisterium. And if he couldn't, he just let it go. So they said, you're suspect of heresy. But the fact that they called it heresy means that not only were they following the Church of 1616, who considered it a matter of faith and morals, so did the Church of 1633. Otherwise, they wouldn't have used the word heresy. Heresy can only be—someone can only be convicted of heresy if the matter before the court is a matter of faith and morals, you see. So, again, the Church upheld the very same thing Bellarmine and Paul V said about uh, this being a very serious matter for the Church. So they, they then sentenced Galileo to confinement at the Vatican for his prison sentence. But by 1639, Galileo has a very intense spiritual experience. And um, if people want to find out more about this, it's written by a, a Harvard scholar named David Wooten, W-O-O-T-O-N. And he tells us that prior to this experience, Galileo, although he was a Catholic, was not a very good one, and he was actually a member of an underground cult to undermine the church. And we, if we know anything about Galileo's personal life, he had three children and all born out of wedlock. He had a fourth one born out of wedlock. So, I mean, this guy, he was, he was not a saint, let's put it that way. And uh, so, and he was notorious for this uh, in his moral life. So when he had this conversion experience in 1539, everything changed for him. And Wooten describes it all in his book. It's very fascinating reading. And at this time, a friend of his came to, uh, wrote him a letter, and his name was Giovanni Perioni, and said that he found proof. Oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't Giovanni Perioni, it was um, uh, Francesco Ruccini, uh, came to Galileo and said, I have proof, scientific proof from Giovanni Perioni that the earth is not in the center, and uh, blah, blah, blah. And Galileo wrote this long, like, five-page letter back to Rinocini and said, no, that's impossible. Uh, the earth is in the center, it's not moving, this is what God has told us. God has the power to do anything he wants. He can make it whatever universe he wants. This is what the church has said. This is what scripture says, and I'm going to stick with it. So that, this is a result of his personal conversion, that he adopted this totally anti-heliocentric view. But you never hear about that in the books and newspapers. I had to research very hard to find this, and, and one day it popped up, and I couldn't believe it. And this whole incident had been under lock and key until about 1960. And, um, and we found out then that it was in the archives of the Galileo affair in, in the Vatican library. And we finally found it. And now we know the truth about Galileo. But even though we knew the truth, nobody was going to be talking about it. And that's why you never see it in the books. Uh, and then Galileo dies in 1642. And, um, and that's the story. <laughs> I mean, those two things there alone are worthy of a uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson mic drops, I think. <laughs> you know, Galileo uh, actually not being a heliocentric 
promoter at the end of his life. I had never heard that before. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Michael, uh, when when uh, Rinuccini got the letter from Galileo, he was so disturbed by it that he tried to erase Galileo's name off the letter so that nobody would see that Galileo wrote this. And, you know, with our advanced science today, we can tell that when a manuscript has been altered, especially if somebody with not the right equipment tries to erase his name. But, you know, so Rinuccini knew that this would change history uh, toward the church if this letter had actually gotten out. And I think the other side of the coin from the Catholic or just Christian perspective in general, I believe I heard you mention that the church fathers are pretty much unanimously geocentric, more so than even other things that are just seen as dogmas of the church. And that that was uh, very revealing when I heard you say that. Yeah, uh, the closest one to a unanimous consent, I'm talking about an absolute unanimous consent, no divergence from the patristic opinion. The closest one that comes to that is baptismal regeneration. Yeah, and how many Catholics today believe a heliocentric universe? I'd say probably quite a few. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that that was a, another mic drop moment for me when I heard you talking about that. Um, and, you know, Galileo, similar to what I researched about him as Copernicus, he was all into Pythagoras, and he was going to the whole uh, allegorical interpretation of Scripture That's that's kind of a precursor of masonry and stuff like that. And so... It's interesting that he he went away from that later on. Um, before we go on to Tico Brahe, actually, I don't know if you wanted to get into Giordano Bruno because he's another figure that people throw this mythos around like Galileo, but he was more of like a Kabbalist than a scientist. So it seems weird that Cosmos wanted him to be their figurehead in the Neil deGrasse Tyson incarnation of it. Yeah, he, um, um, he was much more extreme in the philosophical sense than Galileo was. What Giordano Bruno would do is take some scientific things and then extrapolate on those into philosophical ideas which were opposed to church doctrine. And that's what got him into trouble, is it was a, actually a multifaceted attack on church doctrine, whereas Galileo was just about, you know, the earth. Where was it? And that was it. He'd had no philosophical implications that delved into other issues. For Giordano Bruno, his uh, philosophy, his scientific philosophy, if you want to call it, started to be used to attack the Eucharist. And um, then we got into very fine arguments about what's the sub, what's this thing called substance? How do we understand it? Blah, blah, blah. And that wasn't the only thing, though. There were about a dozen categories where Bruno was attacking church doctrine indirectly but enough that he got the hackles of the church up. And, um, you know, one of the other things he, he would say that there's other life on other planets and all the, all this kind of stuff. And that has implications because, you know, are you saying that there had to be another Jesus Christ to go to this planet or something? You know, what are the implications of all this? So the church basically had to shut him down and we know how it ends, you know, he, uh, and, but that, you know, the church basically handed them over to the governmental authorities and they did what they normally did at that time for people that uh, were against church doctrine and, and were on the verge or were heretics. So he's like original ancient aliens guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's why he's looked to today. 
by some of these um, people who, you know, like uh, Stephen Hawking or whoever, and they consider him a martyr for science because he's the one that pointed them to life on other planets. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting about him is he seems to have been a bit arrogant and aggressive himself. But of course, if you watch the Cosmos series, he's like this poor, innocent monk who just wants to get his free thoughts out to the world and no one's listening to him. But I was getting all this information from academia. I wasn't getting it from Catholics, so you can't claim they were biased. And they were admitting all these things like he had wealthy backing. He was actually allowed into some prestigious schools. I think there were more in you know, like Britain or something, probably Protestant areas, I would just assume. And it seems like he's just brought up to appeal to emotionalism because he had a very intense death. But also, as far as I understand, he was given many years to recant as well. Yeah, I think it was about 10 years he was given and he didn't budge. So, you know, the church was merciful to him. But this is the job of the church to cut these heresies out because they affect people. This is not just a battle between him and the church. This is as far extensions as you can well see with this Galileo issue. I mean, the, there's a one of the scholars that I write about in my book. Uh, what's his name? Um, I forget his name. Maybe I'll remember it as I speak of it. But he's writing. Oh, the, the, the title of the book is Copernicanism, per, Copernicanism for the Church, something like that. And he says in there. Well, you know, since the church made a mistake on Galileo, what other things have the church been wrong on? And his favorite topic is contraception. So he says, you know, uh, here we have it, the church making a mistake, just like they made with Galileo, the church sticking her foot into things that it shouldn't be sticking her foot into. And the result of this is now we have, you know, a law against contraception. So these guys are not afraid. And this guy's a scientist, okay? He knows his stuff, as well as an historian. So how many times have we seen this in the modern age? Well, you know, we don't have to listen to the church because they made a mistake with Galileo. So what else are they wrong about if they're not infallible there? And that opens the whole Pandora's box, as you know. Exactly. And that's similar to Protestantism uh, going its direction. And then soon after that evolves into the dissenters, which devolves into Freemasonry. And then all of a sudden you got all of these new incarnations that are all still fixated on attacking the Catholic Church, even though the Protestants and Masons might argue about this or that or Christ's divinity, they'll still work together to attack the Church, and that's kind of like opening Pandora's box, and I think a lot of it really goes back to this time, and I think that the underlying spirit of it all is more connected than people would admit, and that element goes unseen. Yeah, and this is the age of the low Renaissance you know, it's coming, and then the high renaissance comes, and then the enlightenment comes. So this is an error in human history where it's not like it was back in the, in the prior years, uh, 1500 and before. Uh, men are now feeling their oats, so to speak, and they're, they're discovering things and, uh, in science and in, in life. And they're, they are uh, becoming mature, at least they think so in their mind, by rejecting the old ideas about God and seeing how the world really runs by logical, mechanical things and blah, 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 as, as the story goes. And this whole milieu of men's, men's understanding of his own intellect is part of this issue. And Galileo, Newton, 
all the guys are right in that that time period and uh it sort of feeds on itself and has become the mushroom that it is now we can move on to tico brahi now and i think uh he's interesting and i have a lot of respect for him after looking more into him because he's coming from a protestant background but he's objective enough to see the church's uh you know new calendar as valid uh, and then he got a lot of flack from his own Protestants for accepting the Gregorian calendar. And he was even working with Jesuits. Oh, boy. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, he he is, in my opinion, from a theological standpoint or the things that he might be more predisposed to being biased against, i.e. the Catholic Church, he's actually remaining pretty objective and being able to work with them. And so if you kind of bring that personal objectivity into the the scientific realm, you know, I think you, you start to notice patterns like you mentioned, where some of these people don't really live the most moral lives. And then surprise, surprise, they all magically start unifying on a similar consciousness that is contrary to the church. And so what do you think about the Tycho Brahe model? There's sort of a heliocentric aspect where the planets are still going around the sun, but it's still geocentric Earth. So where does that stand for you in terms of helping or hindering the Catholic Church's position? Yeah, well, it's not really a what some people call it a geocentric, heliocentric model. Yeah, you can put any label you want on it. The point is, since all motion is relative, you can find a system that's going to duplicate what another system shows, because you can start switching the major uh, objects in the in the diagram and have them move and have the same distances as as the previous model. That's not hard to do. At that time, it may have been you know hard because nobody had thought about it before, but Tico did and came up with this model, and uh, the Jesuits were flocking to it, actually. And th this is when the Jesuits were good. You know, this is like the same time that France, or, um, Ignatius of Loyola uh, had, had uh, organized uh, the Jesuits, and um, they were very faithful to Scripture. And so once Tico's model came out, they were flocking to it like crazy. So if you took a tally, of where the Catholic Church stood, it was about 75% for Tycho and about 25% for Galileo, okay? And this is all based on geometrics. In this time in history, in science, nobody knew about dynamic forces like gravity and inertial forces. That didn't come until Newton, uh, like in the late 1600s, early 1700s. So um, when Newton came, uh, things began to change a lot more rapidly than they did prior to Newton toward the heliocentric model. So, um, but at the time, Tycho had the best geocentric model because it could explain everything that the geocentrists had been accused of from Ptolemy's model about not fulfilling, for example, the phases of Venus. Uh, Galileo was right on that regard. Ptolemy's model did not show the phases of Venus. And so if you were Galileo, you would say, look, I found one thing. What else is wrong with this Ptolemaic model? Well, the, the thing was that Ptolemy didn't know how to place some of these planets, like Mercury and Venus, for example, put them in the wrong place, and that made his system what it was, and that resulted in not being able to show the phases of Venus. But Ptolemy, as wise as he was at that time, put six variables in his uh, treatise, The Amalgamist, and said, if somebody can figure out what these variables are, then this model could be corrected. So he didn't hold it out as the definitive model, 
this was the best he could do with the equipment he had. He didn't have a telescope like like Taco uh, Tico Brahe did or Galileo. He had to go by his own eyesight and and figure things out by himself because nobody else was doing it. Uh, so he came pretty close, got his model to work pretty close, but, you know, the phases of Venus. So when Tycho comes along and shows us how we can show the phases of Venus from a geocentric uh, model, wow, that's something. That's, that's a big answer. And so that's why people were flocking to him at that time. And, uh, but we, as time went on, we found that Tycho's model couldn't explain things like stellar parallax or stellar aberration. And so his model had to be adjusted uh, in the geocentric framework, and that's what we call today the neo-tychonic model. Does that involve the Earth rotating, or is it stationary completely? No, it, it keeps the Earth fixed, and it's not rotating, but what it does is it makes the Earth the center of mass for the rotating universe, not the geometric center. The geometric center is the sun. And so that the sun is is basically the um, pivot point for all the matter in the universe. It's the geometric center of all the matter in the universe, but the Earth is the center of mass, and and that deals with dynamics. So we can see why Scripture never says that the Earth is in the center of the universe. The Scripture only says that the Earth doesn't move. And that fits right in line with the neo-tychonic model that sees the Earth as the center of mass, because the center of mass in physics doesn't move, you see. But it doesn't have to be the geometric center. Gotcha. What do you think about the controversy surrounding him and Johannes Kepler? Because they, uh, you know, exhumed Brahe's corpse and determined that he had been poisoned in the 90s. And then right around the time where you guys were starting to form the principle, they decided why not dig it up again and do another test? And all of a sudden they completely reverse the verdict. Yeah. Well, I think his body's been exhumed at least three or four times because it, you can see what a big deal it would be for these people. Okay. If Kepler had poisoned uh, Brahe or Kepler's mother had poisoned Brahe, which is another theory. Um, and the reason Kepler would have incentive to do this is he was a number cruncher for Tycho, and he worked under him. Um, and Tycho was a world-famous Danish astronomer who uh, worked for the king and got a good uh, salary for doing so. And he was the only game in town, as far as that was concerned, and, you know, uh, defending the geocentric model. Um, and he had, with his own eyes, didn't have a telescope with his own eyes. He charted the movements of the planets for over 40 years. And he used this to support the geocentric system. So Kepler, who was a heliocentrist, and you know, there's a lot of stories about his mother being a witch and all this stuff. I, I don't know how true they are. There's probably something to it, but who knows? Uh, at, at any rate, Kepler doesn't like what Tycho is using this star chart, this planet charting for. And the stars. He also charted the stars as well for 40 years. And he had all his notes there, and he guarded them religiously. Kepler wanted those notes, and he was going to just basically re reverse all that Tycho had worked out to support the heliocentric system. Uh, you know, Tycho didn't know this, but he, he did know that these notes were valuable, so he kept them under lock and key. And so the only way that somebody could get to him was get Tycho out of the way, 
and make some excuse that, you know, he uh, made, he wanted me to inherit these notes because he, I'm a scientist too and blah, blah, blah. So it does fit together pretty well, at least the motivations. And uh, so the theory is that he, he uh, poisoned uh, Tycho in his milk with uh, mercury. And when they exhumed Tycho's body, they found mercury in his hair. So somebody did something. Uh, whether it was Kepler or somebody else, we don't know, but there's some, something fishy about this whole thing. And there's been books written about it, and I write about it in my book. And uh, so that's the story there. Uh, Kepler got the notes. He turned them all into heliocentric. And from this, he developed his idea of elliptical orbits of the planets. Yeah, I uh, did a little bit of reading from book on Tycho's island, and I found Kepler to be a very suspicious figure in ways that you could prove where uh, when Tycho died, uh, I, I guess the, the family was supposed to inherit all of his belongings, but somebody wasn't around to claim it. So he was like sniping little pieces of data and doing all these shady things. And then uh, he was also at the court of Rudolph II, which is kind of a, a cult court. And he was kind of blaming hedonism for being distracted there and not getting data. So he was trying to push for the, the Jesuits data who were like working in the East. So he's basically trying to like get people's data by not doing the work himself. And then he's stealing things and, you know, ganking some of it and he gives it back. He gets caught and whatever. So he's already behaving pretty unscrupulously. Um, so it is very suspicious. I'll just leave it at that. Right. So what it tell what this intrigue tells you though, is how important this subject was. All these people knew that there's a big difference between saying the Earth is in the center as opposed to saying, like Carl Sagan told us, the Earth is out there in the remote recesses of space with no signposts, no nothing, and we're just a speck of dust out there. If the Earth is in the center, that means what? Well, these guys aren't stupid. They know that that implies that somebody had to put it there because it's not going to happen by time and chance. I mean, this big, big, massive universe in Earth, just that where we live, just happens to be in the center. Uh, come on, you know nobody's going to believe that happened by time and chance. And so there's a lot at stake here. Uh, this whole geocentric model is a perfect fit with the theology of the Catholic Church that we're the center, we're the apple of God's eye, so to speak, and we were made in His image, and all this fits together like a like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, but on the other hand, if we're out there in the remote recesses of space, well, that gives these guys at least a modem of uh, possibility that it did happen by time and chance, even though, you know, we would say, well, where did the Earth come from? Who made it? Uh, but at least they, they have some modicum of possibility that they can convince people that it happened by time and chance. Uh, moving on to Newton, he's kind of the solidifying figure of taking us in that heliocentric direction and the, you know, the model that you were talking about. So here's another occultist into alchemy, the non-Trinitarian from Trinity college. <laughs> I found that ironic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, it's, he, he ended up being a pretty religious person and almost like a Christian Zionist or a primitive version of it after his occult phase. So he's kind of going through all these different spiritual crises himself, but obviously none of them are really aligning with Catholicism. So Setting that aside, what's his contribution to the science and what are some of the theological angles that you think might have been coloring that or predisposing him towards some of these ideas? Well, he's very anti-Catholic to begin with, okay? I mean, he, 
they found his um, writings in Israel. Uh, somebody bought them like about 15, 20 years ago, if I remember correctly. And he had it for the end of the world, 2060. And the way he got there was by saying that from 1200, if you add the 800, if you add 1200 years to 800, uh, that's the time of the Catholic Church. And we, we know the Catholic Church is apostate. And so you get 1260 if you, if you add this number to um, his, his point where he said the church no longer was the church and the Catholic Church took over. That was around the year 800. So he, he's, he actually wrote more about theology and, and these other things than he did about science, believe it or not. Um, so, but that's where he's coming from. He's very anti-Catholic. And so we see there's a motivation here for him to side with Galileo. The, the, the um, most important thing he gave to the development of this whole issue is his view of dynamics. That is, what forces are involved that make the Earth go around the sun, if you're a heliocentrist, or that make the planets go around the sun? He was the first one, basically, to come to this point where it's not just about geometry. Anybody can draw planets and sun and they coordinate them the way they want. The question is, what's causing it? Okay, And this is a development of the Enlightenment. You know, we cause to effect all this kind of stuff. And this is how empirical evidence is now brought to the fore, because you, if you have an effect, you have to have a cause. And that's understandable. Okay. Question is, do you have the right cause? All right. <laughs> and so what he did basically was, uh, and he became notorious for this by the time Mach and Einstein came along 200 late years later, because We've all been looking at Newton as the definitive answer to this problem of whether the Earth revolves uh, around the sun or the sun revolves around the Earth. And Newton's big thing was, well, because the sun is bigger, it has more mass. And if it has more mass, it has more gravity. So the little Earth can't really do anything with the sun because the sun's so big and massive. So the only way that the Earth can escape the gravity of the sun is by revolving around the sun fast enough so that the sun can't pull it in and destroy it, okay? And so, and, and then the next question would be, well, where, where does the Earth get the power to revolve around the sun? And Newton assigned the word inertia to this. In other words, once the Earth is moving, but that leaves, that begs the question as to who got, who got it started moving, uh, but once the Earth is moving, it has what the, he called inertia, which is mean, it means it's going to go on ad infinitum. And, uh, it, and because the gravity of the sun is pulling at the same time Earth has its own inertia, this results in a circular orbit of the Earth around the sun. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. I was just curious, would you say that Newton is responsible for like an impersonal cosmos or uh, pagan cosmology? Because I've heard the accusation that he made the cosmos mechanical or made God like a machine. Um, I don't know if I would pin that on him, because at this time, most of these guys were still looking to God, whatever they understood God to be. It just wasn't the Catholic God. Mm -hmm. But they would have some notion of God, even though Newton was, as they say, an Arian, at least he had some notion of God and, and Christ, okay? 
But he was mixed up like everybody else is. Once you leave the Catholic Church, you're going to get mixed up on these things. Because the Church, you know, can't reinvent the wheel on these issues. They had already been decided many years ago, and they've been all pounded out. So I wouldn't pin that on him. But, you know, he is in this age where men are looking to science, because science had found some areas where the Church fathers, although they weren't unanimous on it, were incorrect, like, say, spontaneous generation. You know, Augustine believed that in spontaneous generation that, you know, flies formed on meat in an enclosed casing uh, because uh, they spontaneously <laughs> came to existence. All right. So we knew that that was wrong. And, and, you know, it was in the 1600s that that was found out to be wrong. So these guys had something to go on that not everything that was taught previously about science was correct. I mean, look at bloodletting, for example. Uh, you know, <laughs> the bloodletting in like 13, 1400s was supposed to get the evil spirits out of a person's body. Now, if that's not primitive, what is? Mm -hmm. So, you know, these guys in Newton's era and beyond are looking back at this and saying, wow, these people were really, you know, they were on the edge of being cavemen, so to speak. And, uh, and so they would pick these instances where things weren't always correct from the Middle Ages and then make a case that, hey, everything needs to be investigated. Okay, so let's investigate. So Newton's uh, making his model. And it looks good to everybody. I mean, Manuel Kant was on his side, and he was the biggest philosopher in the world at that time. And he was actually known as the father of cosmology because he himself was into cosmology. And um, so he, he had Newton on his, in his, uh, on his side and blah, blah, blah. And these guys all worked together. And so his model looked like, wow, this really makes sense that the Earth is big mass, and we know the Earth has gravity because we hold a pen up and let go of it, and it drops to the ground. So there's something pulling it down. And if the sun is bigger than the Earth, actually it, it is, and we that it means it has more mass. So what's going to stop the Earth from being pulled in? Well, it has to revolve around the sun. So that made sense to everybody. And, you know, admittedly, that's a great system. And not only was it a great dynamic system, it put equations to it, you know, where we get F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration, or is gravitational equation, uh, F equals G M1 M2 over R squared. And that's worked perfectly for us, at least in our tiny little solar system here. Okay. And so everybody was just totally enamored with Newton. Um, you know, he got a lot of stuff from Leibniz and some other uh, scientists, but, you know, put it all together. Who, who, who cares who's at the top of the heap? The fact is we have the Newtonian system as the explanation for the heliocentric system. And boy, that just took off like wildfire. Um, so by the time the church, oh, here's another historical instance that I was referring back to. Under this whole umbrella of Newton, about 200 years later, what, 175 years, this guy named Canon Satelli, who was a Catholic, canon of the Catholic Church, wrote a book on heliocentrism, using some ideas from Newton and, you know, and all kinds of things, put it all together, and he wanted to get an imprimatur for it. And so he presents it to the church, and at that time, Filippo Anfossi, who is the, what they call at that time the master of the sacred palace, uh, he's very similar to the head of the CDF today, 
Uh, he's the only one who had charge of what books would receive an imprimatur. And Filippo Infossi is a traditionalist, basically, and he knows all that happened in 1616 and 1633 with Galileo, how he was condemned and blah, blah, blah. And so he told um, uh, Canon Satelli, uh, sorry, we can't give you an imprimatur because this book, this uh, theory of yours has already been condemned by the church. And um, therefore, I have to tell you no. Uh, now, there was another cardinal at this time who Satelli befriended. His name was uh, Mauricio Olivieri. And um, he was high up in the hierarchy, and uh, he was a heliocentrist, or wanted to be. And so he uh, told Infasi, you know, they had a big argument going on for quite a while. And he told Infasi he was wrong for not giving the imprimatur, and you know, Olivieri said, you know, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to go around you. I'm going to go to Pius VII, who was the pope at that time, and which he did. Because um, Anfossi would not give in. And so, in order to, but he has to, Oliveri has to convince Pius VII to supersede Anfossi's ruling against Canon Satelli, but he has to give some evidence. Okay. So, but the fact is, there is no way to verify any evidence that he gives because prior to this, in 1809, uh, Napoleon had basically ransacked the Vatican and took all the Galileo records, all of them, uh, back to France and put them in a parish library. Okay, so here's the church with one of the biggest incidents ever to occur without any records to go to to find out what happened. And Fossey was only working from his memory. And uh, so what Olivieri does is he, he lies to Pius VII. He says, look, the only reason the church had condemned Galileo was because he had the wrong version of heliocentrism, not that the church was condemning heliocentrism. And, and well, what is that? Well, um, Galileo's version didn't have the elliptical orbits of Kepler. And the church knew that that's the only way it could work. So they told Galileo, sorry, your model doesn't work. You know, you're rejected, and, which was a total lie. Because the 1616 and 1633 Magisterium said not one word about elliptical orbits. Their whole thing was, look, the earth doesn't move. That's it. Okay, that's all we're putting forth because that's what scripture says. The earth doesn't move. It's the center of the universe in that respect. Uh, so Olivieri's lying to Pius VII, and he also made up some other lies as well. And Pius VII was a very weak pope. He was, all the history books say the same thing about him. This guy, when Napoleon came in, he sent Pius the sixth and and then Pius the seventh to Florence to stay there for five years under under incarceration, and then finally let him back in 1814. And he was not the same man as he was before, and he was weak to begin with, and he knew nothing about science. He knew hardly anything about history, and so Olivieri, this big, uh, you know. Uh, hire our cardinal and, you know, co- you know, basically has his way with Pius VII. And Pi- Pius VII gives in and says, all right, give St. Kenneth Satelli an imprimatur. Okay. Why was this the case? Well, everyone thought that he should deserve a, a and, and the newspapers were writing all about this, by the way. They knew what was going on and, and, and Pius VII knew that. So that's another pressure he was under. 
Because by this time, everybody thought that Newton had solved this question. Why was the church maintaining its stance? <laughs> you know, why was Aunt Fozzy refusing to give this guy an imprimatur? Come on, man, get with the game. We all know the truth now because of Newton. And uh, so I, I mentioned that just to show you the intrigue of all this. You think Tycho and Kepler had an intrigue? Well, at this time in the stage of history, there's a lot of intrigue going on. And it just so happens that the associate of Olivieri was Cardinal Capillari. And he was against Dan Fossey for not giving the imprimatur. And it just so happens that Cardinal Capillari became Gregory the 16th in 1831. And four years after that, he took Copernicus's and Gallo's, Galileo's name off the index. And now we know why, because he was in, in cahoots with Olivieri who had lied to Pius VII, you see. So uh, that's the whole story there. But you can see the influence of Newton. But by the time Mach and Einstein came along, 200 years after Newton, things began to change drastically. Science really serves us well here. If you're Catholic, you look to science at this point and say, wow, we never saw this coming, but we're glad it's here. And here was, here was the story. Mach, Ernst Mach, and he's the guy that we, you know, say Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3 for jet, uh, jet airplanes. Um, very famous physicist in his day in the late 1800s um, had said, look, Newton, you can't assume that the universe is absolute. In other words, you can't assume that the universe isn't moving, and that means rotating, and then make your system because you can't prove it. And this was the whole basis for Newtonian physics, absolute space and absolute time. Absolute space referred right to the physical universe. And so all of Newtonian physics, even the equations I just gave you, F equals MA, and then its gravitational equation, and everything else coming from that was all based on absolute space where the universe could not move. And <clears throat> Mach said, since you can't prove that, it's not scientific, and it also means that the universe can move, and if that's the case, then the Earth can be fixed. And so Mach gave us this relativistic understanding of the universe that Newton basically had thrown out the door, and I, I think it's because his motivation was to go against what the Catholic Church was saying. He figured, well, we got him by the tail here. All we have to do is make the universe absolute and non-moving, and the earth has to rotate. And that's the end of story, you see. So Mach called him by, you know, you know Mach, who is just as intellectually astute as Newton, called him by a surprise and said, here's, here's the way it's, it, it works, because we can't prove either one. Einstein followed Mach and said the same thing, basically. And by the time he invented general relativity in 1915, he came right to that point where he said, yeah, we really can't prove it. If the universe rotates around a fixed Earth or the universe rotates within a fixed universe, we can't, we can't have either one, but we know both are available. Now, Einstein himself admitted, he said, even though I know that both are possible, I prefer the one that has the Earth rotating. Why? Well, because if he preferred the one that had the Earth fixed and the universe rotating, he'd have to go kiss the feet of the Pope and say, thank you for saving us from this other theory that, you know, tried to disrupt all of history. Uh, and I've even I've shown that it's possible by general relativity that you're right. And so what would that do 
in the war between science and the church. Well, the church would be the victor easily, okay? But we can't allow that to happen. We're going to take the other side of the coin and say, no, the earth is rotating in a fixed universe. Wow. That's, it, it's another one of those interesting things because a lot of this, if it's going on during you know the 19th century, uh, I find that that century is very underreported. And there was a lot of anti-Catholicism going on then, but we're supposed to just focus on Lincoln and slavery. And then there's all these other things that you just have no idea were going on. And I think that the whole you know, Pius VII situation, maybe there's a reason he reinstated the Jesuits because he realized that maybe they made a huge mistake in suppressing them because as soon as that happened, boy, everything went to hell in a handbasket in Europe. And then he's getting captured by Napoleon, Napoleon's stealing church documents and all these crazy things. And there's all of this transitioning going on that kind of gets swept under the rug here. Um, and so before we wrap up here in the first hour, uh, I don't know if you want to just let everybody know uh, where they can find you, where to watch the principal and where to get any of your other content. Sure. Uh, if they want to get the, the movie, the principal, uh, they can go to um, the principal movie.com uh, for sale there in uh, DVD. Uh, we have Blu-ray. We have also uh, PAL, which is uh, foreign DVDs, because they have a different system than we do. And um, so that's available there. And if they want to get the sequel to that, Journey to the Center of the Universe, a four and a half hour movie that goes into much more detail than the principal, uh, they can get that from um, Journey to the Center of the Universe.com. And there they will find all the other materials that I have um, uh, with the Galileo books. I think there's how many did I publish so far? I think about a dozen, a dozen different Galileo books that they can look at. Some dealing with the science, some with the history, some with both. Um, we even have a book called Geocentrism for Dumskies uh, that I try to whittle down so much that the average person can understand it. <laughs> Uh, even then was, it was difficult, but that's available. We got geocentrism 101. Um, we got geocentrism 102, which goes through the whole history that I'm describing to you now. And of course the three volumes said Galileo was wrong. The church was right. Uh, the first two volumes are about science. The third volume is about the history. And, uh, we got a book on Hildegard, uh, St. Hildegard from the 1100s, who was a geocentrist. And not only because she um, you know, like geocentrism, she has a whole elaborate scientific explanation of geocentrism. That's, uh, at least at that time, it was claimed that she got in a vision from God. Uh, and I write all about that in that book. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot available. Um, so journey to the center of the universe.com or the principal movie.com. You, you can find all the material. Excellent. And I'll put all of that in the description of the video in the podcast. And we'll see everybody in the next hour if they are a subscriber. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.